So when we speak about the moral argument, we're usually talking about Craig's version, but there are many moral arguments, and there are at least two that are actually good by my lights. The first is the argument from moral agents. The existence of moral agents, rational beings who can contemplate moral truths and freely make moral choices, is less surprising on theism than on naturalism. And as I said in my debate with John Buck, I think this argument basically works. It does raise the probability of theism, but it's not enough to significantly alter my credence in theism. And keep in mind, I'm not talking about the distinction between moral agents and moral patients being some kind of problem for atheism, which is something we addressed early on. The existence of moral agents, that is, rational beings who can contemplate moral truths, is just less surprising on theism than it is on naturalism. It's at least not wildly improbable that God would want to create creatures that can contemplate the good, image bearers who are more godlike relative to other parts of his creation. But on naturalism, it easily could have been the case that consciousness didn't exist at all, let alone conscious persons capable of moral reasoning. Even if consciousness is fundamental, that by itself wouldn't lead us to expect moral agents specifically, any more than it would lead us to expect lemur consciousness. Maybe on forms of directed naturalism, where there's some tendency towards the good, or at least some form of naturalism that rejects the strongest formulations of the hypothesis of indifference, maybe there isn't a disparity when it comes to the expectations of theism. As Philip Goff explains in his book, Why? The Purpose of the Universe, there are value selection hypotheses other than theism, like panagentialism, on which the existence of moral agents would not be as surprising as on indifference. In fact, something like panagentialism may be better supported by the evidence of moral agency than theism, since there doesn't seem to be as much of a problem with understated evidence. Like much of the evidence for theism, moral agency is problematically understated. The general fact, moral agents exist, does seem to lend some support for theism relative to the hypothesis of indifference, but when we take a closer look at more specific facts, we encounter details about moral agents that fly in the face of the very expectations the argument relies upon to get off the ground to begin with. As Paul Draper points out, quote, Moral agency is predicted by theism better than by naturalism. But given its existence, the variety and frequency of conditions that severely limit our freedom seem more likely on naturalism. End quote. I would add that the existence of defective moral agents people like sociopaths and psychopaths, who are supposedly also image-bearers, diminishes this line of evidence for theism. But even without invoking severely defective moral agents, ordinary human beings are in some sense very unimpressive moral agents. It's not like human beings are ideal moral reasoners, to give one example. And I can imagine theists not finding that so persuasive, but what generated the prediction of moral agents in the first place? What is it about theism that leads one to think the existence of moral agents counts in its favor? Once you answer that question, I think it becomes clear why more specific facts about moral agency in our world, like defective moral agents, 
the variety and frequency of conditions that severely limit our freedom, cut against theism. So that's my quick response to the argument from moral agents. I think it probably does belong in a cumulative case for theism, but it doesn't move me as much as it would were it not for those two issues with the argument. One, there are non-theistic value selection hypotheses that do as well or better than theism in predicting and explaining the evidence, and not just the general fact. And two, the argument for theism seems to problematically understate the evidence. So the next one is the argument from moral knowledge. A common refrain one hears in the context of the moral argument is that we shouldn't conflate moral ontology with moral epistemology. However, there are some arguments based on moral epistemology as well, some of which are much stronger than the standard moral argument. In their paper, God and Moral Knowledge, Dustin Crummett and Philip Swenson defend one such argument. Quote, Our moral beliefs ultimately depend, in some way, on what philosophers call moral intuitions. When we consider certain moral claims, we can just see whether they're true. We can see that, at least absent extenuating circumstances, hatred is bad, virtue is good, killing innocent people is wrong, etc. With these intuitions in place, we can reason and make our moral judgments more accurate. The problem for the naturalist here is that if naturalism is true, it seems that the faculties responsible for our intuitions were formed through purely natural processes that didn't aim at producing true beliefs. For instance, it seems plausible that our intuition, that you shouldn't cause pain without a good reason, was instilled in us by evolution, since communities of our ancestors who flippantly inflicted harm on each other wouldn't have lasted. But this might unnerve the naturalist who believes in moral knowledge. After all, it seems that we might have easily had very different moral intuitions. For instance, Darwin suggested that, quote, if men were reared under precisely the same conditions as hive bees, our unmarried females would, like the worker bees, think it a sacred duty to kill their brothers, and mothers would strive to kill their fertile daughters, and no one would think of interfering. End quote. So, if we did end up with true moral beliefs in a world where our intuitions were shaped by natural selection alone, then one might think this is a great coincidence. It's by pure luck that you happen to believe the right thing. But if you're just lucky and believing what's true, you don't have knowledge, any more than someone who by chance looks at a broken clock during one of the two times a day it happens to be correct. You don't know the time by looking at a broken clock, even if it happens to be right by accident. And you don't know moral truths by relying on moral intuitions that are only right by accident. So naturalists are in a tough spot, it seems like we have to give up our moral knowledge. We either have to accept moral skepticism, or we have to accept a big coincidence. A big coincidence that theism doesn't need, and then give up our moral knowledge anyway. Obviously, the argument goes, we should instead give up the idea that the processes responsible for our moral intuitions are in no way directed towards moral truth. Just like we need someone to set the clock to align with the time, maybe a designer aligned our moral intuitions with moral truth. Without God, the faculties we use to form moral beliefs are ultimately the result of natural processes that were aimed at giving us beliefs which maximize reproductive fitness, not aimed at giving us true moral beliefs. Quote, Theism can secure moral knowledge without having to posit a happy accident. Rather, God ensured that there would be some degree of alignment between our intuitions and moral truth. Thus, theism can provide an explanation of why our moral beliefs are often true. If the best naturalism can do is posit a happy accident, theism provides a better explanation of the existence of moral knowledge. So I'm simplifying the argument for our purposes, 
glazing over many nuances addressed in the article, so I'd encourage you to read the very short paper yourself, which is free online. So evolutionary debunking arguments are really fascinating. They're often construed as a challenge to moral realism. You know, how could our moral judgments reliably correlate with causally inert moral facts? Our belief-forming dispositions are not free from the influence of evolution, and it's difficult to see how non-natural moral properties could be connected with them. So this isn't an argument from theists primarily. It's an argument usually given in defense of moral anti-realism. And one prominent response to these sorts of arguments is a third-factor approach. If we're trying to explain the correlation between two factors, A and B, in this case, moral facts and human moral beliefs, then we can appeal to a third factor, C, which is linked up, as it were, with both. Defenders of the third-factor approach can differ on what C actually is. David Enoch, for instance, identifies the goodness of survival or reproductive fitness. Derek Parfit also offered something like this, while Eric Wielenberg identifies certain cognitive faculties as the third factor. In my conversation with Humor about metaethics, he explained that most moral realists think our knowledge of moral facts comes by the same faculty, by the same means, as our knowledge of other a priori abstract truths. There's not a separate explanation or a separate faculty for moral facts only. We have accurate moral beliefs because we possess the faculty of reason which we use for lots of stuff. So this argument and related arguments deserve their own treatment, so even though we've hardly scratched the surface, let's return to the standard moral argument once more. So what's wrong with the moral argument? We've covered a ton of ground, but I want to conclude by summarizing a few key points we've discussed that illuminate why the standard moral argument for God is such an abysmally terrible argument. One, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Two, objective moral values exist. Three, therefore, God exists. So I would dispute the first premise, that morality is objective only if God exists, for a number of reasons. First, there are robust systems of moral objectivity that make no reference to God. This is something that does not need to be stated for anyone who is at all familiar with the metaethical literature, but it continually shocks those who have relied entirely on apologists for their information on this subject. As Joe Schmid noted in his video, Moral Arguments for God and Analysis. Popular apologetics is seriously out of sync with metaethics here. If you buy mainstream anthologies on metaethics, most won't even mention God and will still contain boatloads of theories accounting for morality in non theistic terms. So there's a striking gap between popular apologetics on metaethics and the actual metaethical literature. End quote. So am I saying apologists are defending a fringe view, therefore it's wrong? No, I'm saying it's a fringe view because they and their audience don't seem to know that it's a fringe view. They think my rejection of the first premise is fringe. But just as a matter of empirical fact, they have it completely backwards, so it's worth correcting. I also think it's worth mentioning the coherence of non-theistic moral realism because it seems like the first premise of the moral argument, morality is objective only if God exists, is predicated on the impossibility of views like ethical non-naturalism. It's a joke to suggest that defenders of the moral argument actually bother to rule out non-theistic alternatives. If you're going to defend the premise that morality is objective only if God exists, you need to spend some time arguing that non-theistic realism is not an option. But apologists rarely mention moral naturalism or moral non-naturalism, let alone attempt to rule them out in any detail. Apologists are not even on first base here. In case the significance of that point is unclear, 
The defender of the moral argument needs to systematically rule out every realist option that works independently of God in order to meet the burden they've taken on for themselves when they say, morality is objective only if God exists, or if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. So take the specific meta-ethical views defended by Eric Wielenberg in his book Robust Ethics, The Metaphysics and Epistemology of Godless Normative Realism, or those of Michael Humer in Ethical Intuitionism. If the views of Wielenberg, Humer, and others like them are even possible, then the first premise of the moral argument is false. If there's even one coherent non-theistic option on the table, if it is merely possible that atheists can have objective morals, then it is not true that morality is objective only if God exists. Complaining that, quote, moral Platonism is extravagant or vaguely gesturing at evolutionary debunking arguments doesn't satisfy the burden the defender of the moral argument has saddled himself with. You're defending the moral argument. You need to justify the premises of your argument. If you're going to justify the first claim of the moral argument, then you need to justify the claim that all forms of non-theistic moral realism are impossible. If that sounds like an insane burden that no one could possibly meet, then you're beginning to see the absurdity of the moral argument for theism. Another objection is on the basis of intrinsicality. I think some things are intrinsically good or intrinsically bad. That is, they're good or bad in themselves, without the need for something outside of them to account for their goodness or badness. There's something in the very nature of suffering which accounts for its badness, not some extrinsic relation it has to Yahweh. The explanation lies in the nature of suffering, not the nature of God. If you think some things are intrinsically good, for example, some people say human life is intrinsically valuable, then you are saying that those things are good in themselves, not in virtue of something else, like an extrinsic relation they have to God. Similarly, I think facts about the act of torture account for its badness or wrongness. When you call up to mind the nature of torture, and vividly contemplate the extraordinary pain that's inflicted, the absolute dominance of one human being over another, the radical imbalance of power, the unreliability of the information that's sought, if you gain information at all. And did I mention the extraordinary pain? It becomes clear that those features are enough to make it right or wrong, good or bad. If God commanded us not to torture each other, he did so because of those facts those facts about the victim, the perpetrator, and the nature of torture. And again, if you think that some things are intrinsically good or intrinsically valuable, like human life, then I believe what you're saying is that it's good independently of God. How is it intrinsically valuable, an end in itself, if its value depends entirely on some fact about something else? In that case, it's not valuable in itself. It's only valuable in virtue of a relation it stands in to something else. I don't see how you can consistently maintain that human life is intrinsically valuable and that it only has value in virtue of God granting it value. In a related vein, we can ask whether God had reasons for issuing the moral law he handed down. Either God has reasons, or he does not have reasons. If he has a reason for forbidding torture, say because of the intrinsic features of the act, or because it violates the rights of the victim, or some other possibility, then at least some moral truths are explanatorily prior to God, which means the moral argument fails and you've paved the way for non-theistic moral realism. The only alternative to the option that there is a reason is there is no reason, in which case morality is arbitrary, 
there's just no reason God commands what he does. But if he did have a reason, which seems likely, then it's clearly that reason that's doing the explanatory heavy lifting. And if that reason, whatever it was, was good enough for God to issue his injunctions, why wouldn't it be good enough for us? So that's roughly the first order Euthyphro dilemma. Pushing the dilemma back to God's nature doesn't help anything, since we can then present a second order dilemma and ask if there's a reason God's moral nature is as it is. Is there any particular reason God's nature is such that he necessarily forbids torture? Or is there no reason at all? The same dilemma just presents itself again. Either there's an underlying reason for God's moral nature, in which case it's that underlying reason that accounts for moral value, or there is no underlying reason, and the theist has not successfully avoided the problem of moral arbitrariness. If there's a reason God's nature is essentially loving, or if there's a reason his command to love one another necessarily flows from his nature, then God is explanatorily redundant. There's a deeper explanation for his moral nature, and we should be looking to those reasons to account for the goodness of love. So it's not just that the moral argument is implausible in its deductive form. Even if he made an abductive version of the argument with the premise, if morality is objective, then God is the best explanation for its being objective, I would dispute that too since appealing to God to ground moral values either leaves you looking to deeper reasons or leaves you with moral arbitrariness, God could not be the best explanation of objective moral values. There's a further reason God couldn't be the best explanation, or an explanation at all, of objective moral values. How could God explain objective moral truths any more than he could explain objective logical or mathematical truths? If a mind, or a person, or three persons, are posited to ground logical truths, it seems like we're no longer talking about an objectivist theory. We're talking about a subjectivist theory. In other words, I dispute the idea that God can be the author of objective moral values in the first place. Divine command theory cannot get you objective morality. Because it is a subjectivist theory, it leaves you with the problem of horrible endorsements, where certain actions, like torture, are in fact morally right as long as the appropriate person or group endorses them. It also creates new areas of moral disagreement, since even if God exists and morality is grounded in him, we don't know what he commands. And of course, it's vulnerable to Euthyphro-style dilemmas, which either will lead us to ethical truths independent of God, thus refuting divine command theory, or leave us with nothing more than a morally arbitrary set of rules, backed by force. Finally, there's the Oppian, both end and primitives, objection. Without rehashing all the details, both the moral realist and the divine command theorist are going to have to eventually rely on theoretical primitives. There comes a time when the chain of justification and explanation comes to an end, which means the divine command theorist doesn't have a leg to stand on, when they complain about the bruteness or ungroundedness of moral realism. We could also go on the offensive and say that while our theories both end in primitives, the non-theistic alternative does it with less metaphysical baggage, and should therefore be preferred on grounds of simplicity. So in light of the Oppian objection, the fact that divine command theory is not an objectivist theory in the first place, the first and second order Euthyphro dilemma, the intrinsicality objection, and the coherence of non-theistic moral realism, like ethical naturalism and non-naturalism, the moral argument is a completely botched argument for God's existence. There's virtually nothing going for the central premise, and quite a lot going against it. The argument's astonishing popularity is mostly due to widespread unfamiliarity with the main subject matter, 
Metaethics. As I've begun to talk more about this argument, some theists have reacted badly to the suggestion that it matters that they're unfamiliar with metaethics. But if you're making the moral argument, you've already started dealing with metaethics, making metaethical claims and so forth. It obviously wouldn't make any sense to say, I want to make the cosmological argument, but I don't want to talk about philosophy. Metaethics is the engine of the moral argument. So, why aren't there more defenders of the moral argument who are well-versed in the subject matter it depends on? After all, there are brilliant theists who defend cosmological arguments, design arguments, people who have advanced the understanding of the various subjects those arguments run on. So why is it comparatively hard to think of similar cases when it comes to the moral argument? The reason is that once you learn about the subject matter, you realize the argument sucks. That's why most of the defenders of the moral argument are bottom-of-the-barrel pop apologists who don't know anything about metaethics. The worst apologists are the ones who are ignorant of philosophy. So what's Craig's excuse? He's a philosopher, and arguably the most prominent defender of the moral argument. I think the answer can be found in an interview with John D. Martin, who asked him which arguments are the most effective with students. Here's what Craig said. Quote, Interestingly enough, I think the moral argument is the most effective. I personally like the scientific and philosophical arguments, based on science and cosmology, but I find that those don't really move students as much as the moral argument, which says that apart from God, there's no absolute foundation for moral values. Therefore, if you're going to affirm the value of things like tolerance, love, fair play, the rights of women, and so forth, you need to have a transcendent anchor point. You need to have God. I think students are so familiar with the idea that God is dead, therefore everything is relative, that they resonate with that argument when you tell them that apart from God, there are no moral absolutes. So this argument has tremendous appeal to students. It is one to which they respond. Is it just me, or is he saying that he defends the moral argument so frequently because it's effective, and not because he thinks it's a good argument? So with that, thank you for listening. I've been Emerson Green, and I'll see you next time.